I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And I'll resume our reading in verse 14, and we're actually going to, with God's help, read all the way through the end of the chapter and finish verse or finish chapter 12 this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 14. <coughs> These are the words of God. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot shall say, because I am not the hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear shall say, because I am not the eye, I am not the body, Is it therefore not of the body? The whole body were an eye, where were the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where were the smelling? But now hath God set the members, every one of them, in the body, as it hath pleased Him. And if they were all one member, where were the body? But now are they many members, yet but one body. And the eye cannot say unto the hand, I have no need of thee, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Nay, much more, those members of the body which seem to be more feeble are necessary. And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, upon these we bestow more abundant honor. And our uncomely parts have more abundant comeliness. For our comely parts have no need, but God hath tempered the body together, having given more abundant honor to that part which lacked, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another. And whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it. Or one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now ye are the body of Christ, and members in particular. And God hath set some in the church, first apostles, secondarily prophets, thirdly teachers, after that miracles, then gifts of healing, helps, governments, diversities of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Are all workers of miracles? Have all the gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? Covet earnestly the best gifts. And yet show I unto you a more excellent way. Well, in our last sermon from 1 Corinthians, we focused in on just two verses, and we we spent all of our time in verses 12 and 13, which highlighted for us the unity of the body of Christ. Uh, Today, we're going to be looking at a much larger portion of 1 Corinthians, in which Paul explains and illustrates the diversity of the body of Christ. Uh, To some people, the concepts of Unity and diversity are inherently contradictory. They don't understand how they can have unity with someone who is different from them. Sadly, if we're going to be honest with ourselves, this was a philosophy that characterized our nation for many years. Perhaps you even grew up with this mentality that was instilled in you as it was instilled in me 
that if someone is not from the same place as you, or if they don't speak the same language as you, or if they don't have the same culture as you, or if they don't have the same skin color as you, then there's no way for you to be really united to that person. But what God is teaching us, 1 Corinthians 12, is that not only can you have diversity and unity, but that diversity is the very means through which God accomplishes unity in the church. By bringing us together in the body of Christ. And I stated when we looked at verse, uh, verse 13, when Paul talks about whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, that there really is no such thing as a southern church or a white church or a black church. There's just one church made up of redeemed sinners of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is by bringing together a host of saints from all walks of life and placing them in the church that God produces this beautiful, Christocentric, gospel-empowered, Holy Ghost-anointed unity. Just like a beautiful symphony orchestra brings together a variety of instruments, all playing their own unique parts, so too does God bring together His people, all unique, all different, all doing their own unique individual contribution to the body, but yet He brings us together to produce blessed unity through diversity. This is a reality in every local church of Jesus Christ where the Holy Spirit is at work. Because the Holy Spirit individually ministers to us and individually gifts us and individually calls us. A cookie-cutter church is a church that has quenched the Spirit. A church where, where everyone is expected to conform to every little jot and tittle external standard is a church that has no room for the true ministry of the Holy Spirit. But when the Spirit ministers in the church, there's going to be diversity. We're going to be different. We know that's true in our local churches. But the climax of this reality will culminate in the glorious eschatological church of the age to come. The Bible describes it for us in Revelation chapter 7 and verses 9 and 10. And after this I beheld and lo, a great multitude which no man could number of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands, and cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne, and unto the Lamb. All of these people, all these different colors, all these different languages, yet they're all wearing the same white robes, praising the same Lamb of God. Let me remind you again of Paul's goal in 1 Corinthians 12. He's not trying to give us a quaint lesson on the spiritual gifts. A lot of people know 1 Corinthians 12 as the spiritual gifts chapter. But but the spiritual gifts are are subsidiary to, to his main point. He is explaining and demonstrating the wonders and the glories of the body of Christ. It's the body of Christ chapter. Someone, by the way, who is overcome with thankfulness because God has allowed them to be a part of His church is not going to come here constantly looking for something to fight about. 
if you're overwhelmed by the grace of God in making you a member of the body, you're not really going to care too much about what color the carpet is. And all of those other petty things that we like to split churches over. May God help us to just have this mindset of, not only did He save me, which I didn't deserve that, but on top of that, He has saved me, but He's also allowed me to be part of the body. That's the message that Paul is driving at in this chapter and trying to communicate to these prideful, divisive Corinthians. Verses 12 and 13, Paul showed us the theological basis for unity in the body. And it's important that you understand that. I believe that verse 13 is really, really important to understanding 1 Corinthians 12, this entire section, and really... Uh, the doctrine of ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church. So much truth is contained in that verse. But in verses 14 through the end of the chapter, what Paul will now do is demonstrate how this unity is practically achieved through diversity. Another reason why we're able to undertake such a large portion of Scripture is because this passage is really a practical application of the theology that Paul has already given us. So it's a very applicatory, practical sermon, if you will. So if you're sitting there thinking, there's no way that Pastor Ken could get through 18 verses in one Sunday, fear not. I have the gift of miracles. If you listen fast, I'll preach fast. And we'll make it through this chapter. Okay? Uh, but really, it's, it's all one train of thought. It's all one idea. And uh, we're just going to survey what Paul is saying here in the latter half of 1 Corinthians 12. And I want to give you a very simple outline, and I want to show you from this text three distinct areas of diversity that produces unity in the body of Christ. Three distinct areas of diversity. Number one, in the body of Christ, there is diversity in composition. In composition, in the way we are built. Notice, pick up in verse 14, where Paul says, For the body is not one member, but many. To teach unity and diversity, Paul simply stresses the same truth from both sides. Now remember what he says in verse 12, where he, he stresses the fact that, yes, there are many members, but there is one body. And now here, he says, yes, there is one body, but there are also many members. Same truth, stressed from both sides. When the Bible says in verse 14 that the body is not one member but many, this is not merely descriptive, it's definitional. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is it's not just that the church happens to have many members. It's that the church, by definition, must be composed of a diversity of members to be a true church. No one person is a church unto themselves. So by definition, you must have members. Now, uh, the Bible doesn't tell us how many there are. There's a verse in connection with the local church. It's actually talking about church discipline. Matthew 18, where Jesus says, If two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. So you say, how many must we have to be a true church? Well, I think two or three. (laughs) At least. But no one person is the body themselves. Many members is definitional. But I think really what Paul is stressing here is not the, the quantity, but he's, he's stressing the diversity in personality, in character. In the, in the same way, 
that one individual could not be a church unto themselves. Many individuals that cultically follow one human pattern. It's not a healthy church in any sense of the word. Uh, Just imagine if everyone in the church, just imagine practically, if everyone in the church was just like you. And if that makes you comfortable, then, then look to the person next to you and uh, think about what the church would be if everyone in the church was just like them. I don't know about you, but I am one of the people I struggle the most to get along with sometimes. I'm glad that everyone in the church is not just like me. Uh, you all bring your own unique contribution but you, by yourself, are not sufficient. Sometimes, you know, we watch the news, we hear about just the insanity that's going on in our world, and we might not admit it, we might not say it out loud, but what are we thinking to ourselves? We're thinking to ourselves, if only everyone was just like me, the world would be a better place. If we're not careful... We bring the same thinking into the church. And which what really gets dastardly is when we masquerade it through the lens of Scripture. Do you know what I'm talking about? you know what I'm getting at? Where, you know, we might say, well, if they would just follow the Bible, but what we really mean is if they would just follow what I think the Bible is teaching and my view of the Bible, and actually, if they would just be like me. That's really what we're getting at, if we're honest with ourselves. The truth is that to have unity in the church, we don't need a uniformity of people. We need a diversity of people. And so Paul is going to use three instances of personification to explain this principle of diversity and composition. And he's using figurative language here, and he's continuing on with the metaphor comparing the human body and the body of Christ. It's really a a marvelous piece of literature, if you just examine it from that perspective. Notice what he says in verse 15 and 16. He says, If the foot shall say, Because I am not the hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear shall say, Because I am not the eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? Uh, The first two instances are cases where one body part is grumbling and complaining that it isn't another body part, and then it reasons that because it's not that other body part, well, then it just must not be part of the body. What's going on in these verses is the foot starts thinking to himself, and the foot starts thinking, well, you know, it sure would be nice to be a hand, have all that dexterity, wear rings and watches, shake other people's hands. But here I am, down here on the floor, just a sweaty foot. I must not be a part of the body. There must be nothing for me to do here because I'm not a hand. And then the ear does the same thing. Well, I'm just an old forgotten ear sitting over on the side of the, the head got three holes in me that they got 25 years ago and they wish they wouldn't have. Here I am, just an ear. If only I could be an eye. A beautiful eye, right there on the front of the face. No man goes home to his wife and says, Honey, you have 
gorgeous ears to look at. No, I want to look into your eyes. So the ear says, well, since I'm not the eye, I must, must not be part of the body. Notice the lament. The lament is not, oh, oh how badly I, I need to try to be this other part. But the lament is, well, I'm just not part at all. I think Paul is making a very important point here. Their discontent has led them to believe that they aren't even a part of the body at all. And they're so hyper-focused on the gifts and callings of another body part that they fail to see what they can do, what they're called to do, what their role in the body is. If the foot would just quit coveting the position of the hand and just focus on being the best foot it could be, imagine what a blessing it would be to the rest of the body. Your body needs feet and ears just as much as it needs hands and eyes. Okay, that's a metaphor. Well, how do we apply this today? Well, because I'm not the pastor, I must have no valuable contribution to make to the church. And because I can't lead the women's Bible study, I must not be a part of the body. I'll just stay home. I'm needless, worthless. They don't need me there. This is the type of attitude that Paul is fighting against. Listen, any place that God puts you in the body of Christ is an important place. Mm -hmm. Remove the enmity in your heart because of the gift that you don't have and use the gifts that you do have for the glory of God and the good of the church. And maybe you can't preach and teach. But perhaps God has blessed you with the ability to persevere in prayer. And while some members of your church may struggle to have a faithful prayer life, God has blessed you with the ability to commune with God in prayer and to to call out and to pray for and intercede for the rest of the body. Is that not a needful gift and service to the church? Maybe your, your public ministry is not your gift. But perhaps God has given you the gift of encouragement. The thought of getting up in front of a group of people and teaching from the Word of God is just not your thing. It's not what God's called you to do. But maybe your gift is when a brother is down or a sister is down, you're going to go out of your way to put your arm around them. Say, I love you. I'm here with you. Is that not an important gift in the body of Christ? That's what Paul is getting at here. No matter what you've been called to do, you have an important role to play in the church. Notice what he says in verse 17. Now he uses a, a really absurd scenario. He says, if the whole body were an eye, where were the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where were the smelling? You can't have a body that's just one big eyeball. Number one, it's creepy. But number two, think of all of the bodily functions that would be lacking if all you had was a big eyeball. If we don't have diversity, we will have deficiency. Tweet that out. If you don't have diversity in the church, you'll have deficiency in the church. 
Praise God that all of us are not the same. Praise God that not every man is called to preach. And why do I mention that? Well, because that's the problem of the Corinthians. They thought that if I don't have a gift that that manifests itself publicly, then I don't have an important gift. And, And so much of the church is characterized by that same mentality. We need to do away with the idea uh, that if I'm not a preacher, I'm not uh, of service to the body. You know, as the old saying goes, uh, God's given you one mouth and two ears, right? I I remember, (laughs) I remember in Bible college, there was, we didn't articulate it this way, but there was kind of this attitude that, you know, if you are, if you are, a serious Christian, then maybe you'll be a deacon in a church somewhere and you'll be a song leader. And if you're, if you're spiritual, you might even be a pastor. But if, I mean, if you are really spiritual and you really love the Lord, you're going to the foreign mission field. And all the other young men that I went to college with, I was the only one that wanted to be a pastor in America. They all wanted to go to the foreign mission field. Want to be a missionary. Going to Bible college, going to go be a missionary. Well, none of my former classmates are on the mission field right now. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that it's a bad desire to have, but what I'm saying is that we romanticize certain callings and certain gifts And we tell young people, especially young men, if you're not a preacher, if you're not a missionary, then then really you're just a second-class citizen. It's a romanticized calling, but maybe it wasn't their calling. It wasn't what God was calling them to do. I don't know. I can't say. But do you know why a pastor is a pastor? Or why a missionary is a missionary? Not because he loves God more than others. Not because he's more spiritual than everybody else. But because of his unique gifts and calling. That's why. It's the same reason why anyone is what they are in the church. Because of their unique gifts and calling. We don't need a church full of pastors. Amen? Somebody. We need a church full of men and women who love Jesus and embrace their own giftings and their own callings, whatever that happens to be. Notice in verse 18, Paul more explicitly says, but now, this is not a a, a chronological distinction. He's not saying, you know, it was this, but now in time it's this. He's He's making a distinction by introducing this language, but now hath God. So he says, Here's what you've done with your, your selfish desires and, and your own envy, but now here's what God has done. God has set the members, every one of them, in the body as it hath pleased Him. God is the master architect of the church. Amen. He's the one who builds His church. Amen. He places each member exactly where He wants them according to His all-wise design. And when you're grumbling about what gift you don't have, you're grumbling against the sovereignty of God. I can speak anecdotally from my experiences. I don't know yours, but I know that there's a big temptation to look at some other preacher 
and to covet His gifts. Well, if only I could preach the Old Testament narratives like John Miller. <laughs> or, you know, if only, I, if only I could teach systematic theology like Dr. Waldron. Or if only I had the homiletical power of Al Martin. You know, and you, you look at these guys and you, you listen to them and you covet their gifts and their calling. God does give us each other to learn from and to model after insofar as we follow Christ. But you need to embrace your gift and your calling and what God has given you to do. They, again, it's the, kind of a cliche saying, but be yourself. Everyone else is already taken. Now, why, why might the foot and the ear be complaining? One of two reasons, and perhaps it's a little bit of both. Number one, it could be because of the elitism and the arrogance of the hand and the eye who brag and boast about themselves. So I, I don't want to be too hard on the foot and too hard on the ear. Again, I didn't say what I said about my former classmates to disparage any one of them, but, but rather to kind of hit at this, this idea, this, this philosophy that, that we, was drilled in us that you know, if you're really spiritual and you're really going to serve the Lord, you're going to go be a missionary. And so it could be that you have a, a dynamic, charismatic personality that boasts and brags about how gifted he is or how gifted she is, and that makes the others feel more insecure and envious. But then again, it could, could be all just because of the, the jealousy of the, the foot in the ear. What do I bring these two up? Because I, I want you to understand that all of us need to do our part in remembering that anything we have is from God. Mm-hmm. We don't boast in our giftings and boast in our callings. And I, I, I find it more and more, and I hope it's sanctification because I used to not notice it. I'm sure it was still there. Uh, but I hope God is allowing me to see it first in myself, but then also in others. But braggadocious, self Puffing preachers just really kind of turned me off. I was listening to uh, an interview the other day from a man I respect, and he was talking about things he's learned preaching through Romans. And he made a point in this one interview to, to say three or four times that he had read 140 commentaries on Romans and that he read them every week. 140 commentaries, 140... And I'm sitting there listening, I'm like, okay, we get it. You have a lot of commentaries on Romans. Congratulations. I, I'm not going to call into question the validity of the statement. I will say that if you're reading 140 Romans commentaries every week, you really do have a gift. But I say that because I don't just see it in others, I see it in myself. And I want to repent of it when I see it in myself. The 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 besetting sinful desire to, to speak more highly of myself than I ought to speak and to go out of my way to make sure you know what I've done and what I'm capable of and what I've accomplished. The Bible says, let the lips of another praise thee. Mm-hmm. How do we overcome this, this foot-ear envy syndrome? By realizing 
that God's perfect design and plan for the church is that many members would be united in diversity, all having a unique calling and equipping. We need to embrace that. No one is here by mistake. And as much as one body part cannot say, I am not of the body. And by the way, pouting and sulking and saying you're not part of the body does not actually make you not part of the body. Well, I'll just leave. You're still a part of the body. So too can no body part say to another body part, I have no need of you. If you have this mentality that certain people at this church are more important than other people, repent. If you've been led of the Lord to join this church, you're here for a reason. God has added you here for your own good and for the good of everyone else. And as long as you're trying to be someone else and someplace else, you'll never flourish in the body. But when you embrace the call of God upon your life, this is where He's put me. This is what He's given to me. And I'm going to be as faithful of a servant, His body, as I can be. In 19 through 21, Paul just continues this illustration. If, if we were all one member, where were the body? But now are they many members, yet one body? The eye can't say to the hand, I have no need of thee, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. We are all one body, and God has composed us with a mutual interdependence upon one another. Now, for your salvation, your regeneration, your justification, you only need one person, and that's God. But to faithfully live the Christian life you need the body. That's right. Amen. Go through your New Testament sometime, when you have a lot of time, <laughs> and underline and jot down all of the commands just in the New Testament. And then notice how many of those commands require someone else to obey them. Love one another. Well, what does that mean? Well, I've got to have somebody to love. Singing to one another in psalms, hymns, and spirituals. I could go on and on. Each of us has something that the rest of us need. So we don't ask the question, do we need this member in the body? No, we, we know that we need them. We ask the question, why did God send them here? What, is, what are their gifts? What are their contributions? Let's, let's get them serving. Let's get those gifts exercising in the body. So number one, in composition. Secondly, there is diversity in community. Notice in verse 22. Paul goes on to emphasize two more areas where diversity in the church manifests itself. And these are in how we regard one another and in how we interact with one another. So our, our view of each other and how we actually interact with one another. You know, if we don't have an understanding of the blessing of diversity, we will have a very skewed view of the value and importance of other members in the body. And notice Paul will use phrases like, which seem and which we think. Verse 22, he says, Nay, much more, those members of the body, which seem 
to be more feeble, are necessary. And those members of the body, which we think to be less honorable, upon these we bestow more abundant honor. And our uncomely parts have more abundant comeliness. He, he continues on with this metaphor, and he mentions three categories of body parts. Uh, this is the trickiest part of this passage. Let me break it down for you. The, there's three categories of body parts. In the King James, it's feeble body parts, honorable body parts, and comely body parts. And they also have their alternatives. There's honorable and un- dishonorable. There's comely and uncomely, right? There's feeble and there's strong. In the New King James, it's a little more clear in our modern context, but he speaks of weak body parts, honorable body parts, and presentable body parts. And again, he's talking about the human body. Paul is uh, actually really using some, some rather shocking language, if you understand what he's talking about, but he does it in a very modest way. The point that Paul is making is that the true value in the body is often not on the surface level. That's true of your human body. It's true of the church. Think about your own body. The body parts that you can't see may be weaker, but they're the ones that you can't live without. A foot can withstand a lot more blunt force trauma than a brain. But just because the brain is hid behind the skull doesn't mean it's not important to the body. It's a feeble part of the body. When Paul speaks about body parts that are less honorable and uncomely, he's referring to body parts that we are careful to cover and conceal in public. I'll let you figure out what specifically Paul has in mind there. I think it's quite obvious parts of our body that we make sure we keep covered in the presence of others. By the way, the Bible's standard for what those parts are is a little bit of a longer list than societies. It's another sermon for another day. But this is his argument in that. Just because there are some parts of the body that we keep covered doesn't mean that they are unnecessary. In fact, those private parts of the body that you must conceal in public are essential to human reproduction and growth. They're not unnecessary. That's not why you cover them. Just because it's covered doesn't mean it's unimportant. Okay, that's true of the human body. How is that true of the church? We need those parts of the body which seem to be weak, which are covered, which are in the background, which perhaps are unimpressive to the world. Those are the things which are most necessary in the church. When someone visits a church for the first time and they find it to be impressive, what do they go home and talk about? Well, that church has a great preacher. He's engaging, he's exciting, he's a good teacher, preaches with power. Or maybe they say, well, that that church has a wonderful building, beautiful pulpit, nice facilities. But what's the problem with that? The problem with that is they're only seeing those parts of the body which are on the surface level. 
They might see the preacher, but they don't see the other members of the church who prayed for him in private all throughout the week that he might be able to preach. They might see him in the pulpit for an hour, but they don't see him all throughout the week spending 12 to 15 to 20 times longer at his desk in his study preparing. They might see the building, but they don't see the men and women who use their gifts and skills to serve the church to provide that building. You you see this, this nice pulpit and this raised platform. But I know what the building looks like about a year and a half ago when, when the whole church is covered in sawdust and smells like wood stain. Because a brother dedicated his time and his gifts to serve the church in a way that most people never see. You just see the, the surface level. And Paul says that those parts of the body which are more private, which don't get the attention and the recognition of the other parts, those are absolutely indispensable to the health of the body. We need those parts of the body which seem weak. So if you're here this morning and you're thinking, I'm a weak part of the body. I'm a feeble part of the body. Rejoice in your weakness. God loves weakness. God loves to take your weakness and demonstrate His power through it. And if you're strong, if you have one of those gifts that's more surface level, you need to daily wage war against the temptation of pride. And go out of your way to lift up and exalt be thankful for and to praise publicly and openly to praise those other parts of the body notice at the end of verse 24 I love this phrase it says God hath tempered the body together I love that word tempered temperate he, he's, he's fashioned it in such a, a marvelous way that makes it compatible it makes it work so that those things which we might find to be unimpressive receive the highest honor. It won't be the preachers that are going to be sitting in the front pew closest to the throne. It'll be those mothers, those men, those prayer warriors who are faithful to the body who gave their lives for the body. Their, their whole life just revolved around the body of Christ. They prayed for their pastor. They prayed for other church members. They sacrificed of their time and their efforts so that those members, which we think to be more feeble, God says He will bestow more abundant honor. Mm-hmm. Diversity is God's design for the church. The church is not to be built around one charismatic preacher or dynamic leader. It is to be built together with all parts of the body serving one another for the good of the whole. Notice verse 25. Why why this, this way of designing the church? That there should be no schism in the body. Again, this, this, 
this flies in the, the face of how we naturally think, right? We think to avoid schism, we need to get a bunch of people who are just like each other, put them together. But God says, no, no, I'm going to avoid schism by, by bringing a diverse group of people and putting them together. How can there be division if we realize that we're only here because God put us here? And we have the gifts we have because God gave them to us. And we have the callings that we have because God called us to it. See, that's what Paul is getting at. When we embrace our diversity as the blessing that it is, we will avoid schism in the church. So instead of grumbling that you're not someone else, be thankful for who you are. Instead of always focusing on what our church doesn't have, is that not a big temptation? Considering where we are, what, what most churches have that we just don't. Instead of always focusing on what we don't have, let's get excited about what God has given to us. Let's serve Him with what we got. Not only is this diversity seen in how we regard one another, but also in how we treat one another. He goes on in verse 25. He says, but that the members should have the same care one for another. Emphasis on the same. Diverse members, same care. Different body parts, same care. What is the great antidote to schism in the body? Love for one another. Having the same care one for another. I need to care about you the same way I care about me because we're members of the same body. If you're struggling, I'm struggling. But if you're thriving, I'm thriving. The the job of the heart is to pump blood filled with oxygen throughout the body. The job of the kidney is to clean the, the blood to remove excess water and waste. But if the heart doesn't do its job of pumping blood, the kidney won't have enough oxygen to do its job of cleaning the blood. But if the kidney doesn't do its job of cleaning the blood, the heart won't have any clean blood to pump. That's what it means to have the same care one for another. Because whether you have kidney failure or heart failure, you're dying. We have a mutual care one for another. We desire to see good things in the lives of those we go to church with. Again, this is not deep stuff. He echoes in verse 26, what Paul says in Romans 12 and verse 15. He says, And whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it. Or one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. Again, that's we noticed this last time in 1 Corinthians that, that this clearly is in the context of a local assembly. One member's suffering, we're all suffering. One member's honored, we're all rejoicing. And Paul says in Romans 12 and verse 15, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. It's our responsibility as members of the same body to bear one another's burdens. And that that means that if life is dealing you some hard blows and you're in the middle of it, I'm right there in the middle of it with you. When you hurt, I love you enough to hurt with you. 
And God has put us together for this very reason. As members of the body of Christ, you never have to go through it alone. No matter what it is. Now we're a lot better at weeping with those who weep than we are at rejoicing with those who rejoice, right? Sometimes jealousy gets in the way. I got a promotion at work. I didn't. Yay. I'm getting married. Great. I'm 37 and single. I got money. Hallelujah. I don't. Give to those who have need. Right? But if we really have this kind of mutual love for one another as vital members of the same body, despite our human tendency towards jealousy, we'll be able to have genuine happiness over the blessings of others for no other reason than the fact that we love them. You can tell a lot about where you are spiritually based upon your initial reaction when someone shares good news with you. <laughs> I fail that test. I'm so, I so often want to immediately think about me. Pain and pleasure are common to all because we all share a common life as members of the same body. I rejoice when you rejoice. Good things happen to you when God shines His face upon you. Even if I'm not currently on that mountaintop with you, I, I am with you because I'm part of the same body. And when you're down in the valley, I'm down there with you. This is what it means to be the united body of Christ. It's what Paul means when he says, Now ye are the body of Christ and members in particular. But thirdly and lastly, I want you to see the last area of diversity, and that is in our commission. In our commission. Notice in verse 28. The final place where our diversity is shown is specifically in our spiritual gifts and the offices of the church. Paul comes full circle, and he closes this chapter the way he began it, by talking about spiritual gifts. And he also shows... Uh, that there is a connection between spiritual gifts and offices in the church. Now, again, the goal of Paul in this section is not to give us just a, a lesson on what all of these things are, so I'm going to be very brief in explaining them to you. But Paul gives us a list of eight offices and gifts. Some of them are offices, some of them are gifts. Notice in the list, in verse 28, he mentions, number one, apostles. Uh, that is, those men personally called by Christ to be his immediate messengers. They had to be witnesses of the resurrection and they had to receive a personal direct call to that ministry. Secondly, Paul mentions prophets. Those who were occasionally given revelation from God to speak to the church. And thirdly, he mentions teachers. Those who were not inspired, but gifted to explain and proclaim previously given revelation. Uh, fourthly, he mentions miracles. It's a gift, not an office. Miracles. Those given the ability to perform supernatural acts. Uh, fifthly, healings. Again, I, I take the view that this is not an office of healer, but the gift of healings. Those who, uh, who have the ability to heal. And sixthly, helps. Needs no explanation. Those in the church qualified and appointed to come alongside and assist others especially other officers in the church. Seven, governments. 
those with gifts of administration and leadership. And eight, he mentions diversity of tongues, those with the supernatural ability to speak and understand foreign languages. But why does Paul give this list? Because he's giving us an example of the diversity in the church. All of these offices and all of these gifts were given to the body. And there were some churches in the apostolic age that had all of these gifts and all of these offices functioning in them. He's proving that God designed the church with diversity. And we know this by the questions he asks in verses 29 and 30, which all have an implied negative answer, right? Are all apostles? No, all are not apostles. Are all prophets? No, all are not prophets. Are all teachers? Are all workers of miracles? So on and so forth. The answer is no, we're different. We're different. In in previous sermons on spiritual gifts, we saw that there's essentially two kinds of gifts. There are those gifts that are foundational to the church and have ceased. And there, there are those gifts that are normative to the church and continue. And let me just say quickly that the same is true for offices in the church. There were foundational offices in the church, apostle, prophet, evangelist, that, that were there in the first century before the canon of Scripture was complete, but with the coming of Revelation, there's no more need for these offices. You say, how do you know if an office has ceased? You know if an office has ceased if the gift that corresponds to that office has ceased. And we know an office is permanent if the gift that corresponds to that office is permanent. So you take, for instance, the the office of apostle and prophet, the gifts associated with that office were their revelatory sign gifts. They had the gift of receiving divine revelation and writing it down or preaching it in the church. And then they had the gifts of miracles and healings to authenticate their message. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 12, Paul says, Truly the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. What's Paul saying? In 2 Corinthians, he's saying, You know I'm an apostle, because I performed the miracles that only an apostle can do before you. But with the coming of Scripture, with the completion of Revelation, there no longer remains a need for revelatory sign gifts and revelatory sign offices. Ephesians 2 and verse 20 says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. say, what's the foundation of the church? It's the apostles and prophets. And Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. Cornerstone is the very first brick, the very first stone you lay to to establish and set the entire building. And then upon that you lay the foundation. But remember the question that we asked in this section, when you build something, how many times do you lay the foundation? Once. Once you lay the foundation. And so the only apostles and prophets we have in the church today are the ones who speak to us through the pages of Holy Scripture. But there have not been any new apostles for 2,000 years. I like to word it that way better than saying there's no apostles today because there are apostles today. Right here in, in your New Testament. If we don't have the apostles, if we don't have apostolic doctrine, then we're not a church of the Lord Jesus Christ. But that apostolic doctrine was once delivered to the saints, Jude says, right? Once delivered to the saints. 
There's two permanent offices in the church today, and those are the offices of pastor and deacon. Pastors are also referred to in the Bible as elders or bishops. Anytime you're reading and you see elder, pastor, bishop, same office, three different words to describe it. You say, how do we know that those offices are permanent? Well, because the gifts that correspond to those offices are permanent. What are the gifts? Well, for a pastor, he needs to have the gift of teaching. He needs to have the gift of governments. He needs to be able to proclaim the word, to teach the word, and to function as an overseer in the church. And deacons must have the gift of helps. because They're called to be servants to the church. But again, Paul's main point is not which gifts have ceased and which gifts continue and which gifts do you have. Why might he not even get into that in 1 Corinthians? Well, because when he was writing this, all of the gifts were operative, all of the offices were operative. It wasn't an issue in his day, right? Now, what is his point here? His point is that it would be absurd for all of us to seek the same gift just as it would be absurd for all of us to seek the same office. We need a diversity to establish a healthy body. And then he concludes this chapter in verse 31. Some argue that verse 31 of chapter 12 really belongs as verse 1 of chapter 13. Of course, when Paul wrote this, he didn't write it with chapter and verse divisions. But he says, here's all the gifts, here's all the offices, but now he gives us this concluding word of instruction. He says, but covet earnestly. That means to, to sincerely desire. It's not wrong to desire a gift, by the way. Even if it's a gift you don't have, it's not wrong to desire the gift. But there's a right way to desire it and a wrong way to desire it. The wrong way to desire it is to be jealous of someone who has it and to complain and grumble that you don't. What's the right way to desire a gift? Well, Paul says, I show unto you a more excellent way. I'm going to show you the proper way to desire gifts, to discern what your gifts are, to use them in the church, I could be mean to you, and I could say that uh, when we get back from Germany and we get back to 1 Corinthians, I'll tell you what the more excellent way is and just leave you on a cliffhanger. Uh, but I'm not going to do that. So let me give you a spoiler. The more excellent way is love. First Corinthians 13 was not given so that you could have a pretty picture to hang on your refrigerator. It's the Word of God, and it's right in between chapters 12 and 14. Deep, deep exposition there, right? That was a really deep exegetical nugget that chapter 13 comes in between chapters 12 and 14. Because you're supposed to use your spiritual gifts. Desire them, employ them, seek after them, cultivate them, discern them, grow in them, all in the context of love in the body of Christ. That's what the more excellent way is. How do you foster unity in the church? How do you serve for the glory of God and the good of the church? You must begin with a deep, sincere Christian love for the rest of the body. If I love you, I'll want to serve you. If I love you, I'll embrace the diversity between us. If I love you, I'll endeavor to preserve the unity in the body of Christ. I'm not going to let some little difference get between us. I'm not going to let some, some minor disagreement hinder our fellowship because I love you too much for that. 
Well, this passage is the death blow to pride and elitism and envy and jealousy. God has built the body. Who are we to criticize His handiwork? We can pray that God would give us more gifts. I hope you pray for that. I hope you pray for that for yourself. And I hope you pray for that for the church. But God will give us what we need when we need it in His perfect timing. We're not to to be looking out at other bodies. We're not to be looking out at some other church that's been around for 50 years and has a a plurality of elders and has a pastor that's been there 25 years and has knows all the hymns in the hymnal and you know on down the line and say, well, if only we were like that. We can pray for that. We can desire that. But we need to be thankful for what God is giving us along the way. So let me make a, a few pointed applications for each of us. You need to humbly and thankfully accept your place in the body of Christ. All of us need to do that. Whatever gift God has given you, whatever gift He hasn't given you, be thankful for it and use it. Furthermore, you need to be active in the body of Christ. Christianity is not a spectator sport. All of us have been called by God to uniquely contribute to the life of the church. This means you need to be here as much as you can be. Yes, you need to be here in the worship services, but you also need to be present in one another's lives. It's a great verse, you know, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together, but I really don't think that primarily he's just talking about worship services as much as I wish he was, because it's a great verse. Come to church, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. But it's bigger than that. Be a part of one another's lives. Meet with one another. Fellowship with one another. Commune with one another. You can come to church 52 Sundays a year, but if you make no effort to invest yourselves in the lives of others, you will not obey this text. Get to know one another. Show interest in one another. One of the great things about the size of our church is that's really not a hard thing to do. All of us, to some extent should be involved in each other's lives. We should be. On the other side, this text is a rebuke to those who want to live in isolation. Those who think they have no need for the body. When you say, I don't need the body, you are saying, God, I don't need what you say I need. And God says, I know who will be a sanctifying influence in your life. I know who will be a blessing in your life. And so I'm going to put you together. And you say, but Lord, I don't get along with them. They do things that annoy me. And he says, exactly. That's the point. That's why I'm putting you together. Let me challenge you to do this. I want you to go home. And I want you to think individually about every member of our church. And I want you to consider the unique contribution that they are to your spiritual life. The blessing that they are to you in a way that no one else is. I do this, and it doesn't take me long to realize what a blessing each and every one of you are to me. All of you? Yes, all of you. In, in individual ways that no one else is. There's something that this one does. There's, there's, there's 
a love I receive from this one that there's not, no one else. Isn't that it's just so precious, so beautiful, that each one of you bless me in a way that is specific to your gifts and your calling in life. All according to the wise design of God. Who said, Ken, I know what you need to be a better Christian and a better pastor. You need Alan Roney in your life. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give him to you, and and I'm going to give you to him. I still don't know which of us got the better deal. (laughs) Christy Williams needs Abigail. So I'm going to give them to each other in the body of Christ. God said, poor Jackson, he needs all of us, so... That's what the church is. This isn't some social club where we fight and argue over who the best one is. Like the disciples, Lord, who's the greatest? Who's the greatest? We've been given to each other. Been given to each other. That's what the body is. It's a group of blood-bought, redeemed sinners who have been given to one another to serve and worship our Lord and Savior together as one. May God help us to thank Him for this blessed diversity that produces unity. Our Father, what a delight and what a joy to read these precious truths in Your Word. Lord, I I don't even deserve to be saved, to be redeemed by the blood of Christ. Much less, oh, much less to be a part of the body of Christ on earth. But oh, how thankful I am for the church. I love it. I love the people that make the church up. This is home. This is where I belong. This is where you've placed me. And until you tell otherwise, this is where I'll serve you all the days of my life. Father, I pray that you would help us to embrace each one's differences and what makes us all different and diverse and unique and to to be thankful for that. Thankful for that. Help us as a church to be more expressive of our love and appreciation one for another. Especially me, Lord. As I may serve publicly in the pulpit, there are so many who serve this body that don't get the recognition they deserve the honor that should be bestowed upon them. Help me to lead the way in praising others. Father, thank you for the body of Christ. May we endeavor and strive to maintain this unity that we have through the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in His name we pray. Amen.